Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit TherapyNotes.com to get two free months of Therapy Notes by just using the promo code CEU when you sign up for a free trial at TherapyNotes.com. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on motivational enhancement and stages of readiness for change. This is part of the video guide that is going to accompany the quick start guide for recovery from addiction and co-occurring disorders. The first section that you're really going to talk about is motivational enhancement. And what we're going to do in motivational enhancement is very simple. I'm going to encourage you to explore the PACER dimensions of motivation and how to enhance them. Motivation is essential for change, and it helps people identify why it's worth the effort to make a change. It helps people keep going when the going gets tough because, you know, a lot of people think, oh, change is so exciting. I'm excited to lose weight. I'm excited to do whatever. But a week or two into it, it can become hard and uncomfortable because you're doing things that you're not used to doing. You're foregoing things that were somehow rewarding in the past. It's important to help people recognize that change can be hard. And motivation is different for different goals. For example, in recovery, one of the things we talk about with people is the fact that they're going to have to change people, places, and things, which is true. However, they may be willing to change places, maybe not go to places that they used to use before. They may be willing to change things, get certain things out of their environment, but they may not be quite ready to change people yet. They may not be ready to step away or put some distance distance between themselves and their using peers. And it's important to recognize that so we can enhance motivation at the appropriate level of readiness for each goal. Motivation may decrease over time unless you actively maintain it, which is one of the reasons we see a lot of people's um, motivation go down for their New Year's resolutions, because they start out, they're gung-ho, they think, oh my gosh, this change is going to be so exciting, I'm going to do it this time. Then it starts to get hard and uncomfortable, and their motivation starts to wane. Even if we are doing things and we're motivated, it is important to recognize that, you know, if we're not getting immediate benefit out of it, we may start to forget or minimize the importance of it, such as going to counseling. When people start to feel better, a lot of times they start becoming less attentive to counseling. They may 
cancel their appointments, they may skip weeks, they may not do as much homework, um, and they may, as they start feeling better, they're like, okay, you know, I'm recovered, so I don't have to keep making sure that I'm getting a solid eight hours of sleep at night. I don't have to pay so much attention to my stress management because I'm recovered. It's kind of like they think that mental health is like the flu, and once you're recovered that you don't have to keep doing those same things and it's important to remember that you know with the flu you get a, a virus and that virus runs its course or whatever you want to call it and then you may be able to resume your old ways but with mental health you are constantly living sort of in your own head and it's important to remind people that it is important for them to make sure that they continue to do what they need to do to maintain their health and well-being. I mentioned that motivation has multiple dimensions, and I referred to them as the PACER dimensions. And if you've been with me before, you're familiar with this acronym. PACER stands for Physical, Affective, Cognitive, Environmental, and Relationships. Physical motivation. Now, you'll see next to the title, parenthetically, it gives you a certain amount of time. And if you are going to use these activities in group, this tells you about how much time you would spend in this particular section. And for physical motivation, you can, well, for each one, you can actually spend about 90 minutes. You can do an entire group. When we talk about physical motivation, we want to help people understand that we're looking at the ways, whatever change they're going to make, if it's going to counseling, if it's in weight, if it's starting to exercise, whatever their, their goals are, how is this change going to make them healthier or feel better physically? And really drill down on that aspect of physically. How is it going to help you increase your energy? How is it going to reduce pain? How is it going to reduce sickness? Now, remember that when we get stressed, we tend to reduce our serotonin levels and experience increased pain levels or reduced pain threshold, however you want to think about it. When we are stressed, we also tend to feel more GI disturbances and things like that. So there's a direct correlation between emotions and physical motivation, but we do want people to identify, you know, how is this new behavior, this healthy lifestyle that I want to embrace going to help me feel less pain, less stomach upset, less headaches, less TMJ? How is it going to help me manage my chronic conditions? And this is true for, especially for people who have autoimmune issues or diabetes or hypertension, when they are living a healthy lifestyle. And generally, any change they're going to be coming to counseling to make is going to contribute to a healthy lifestyle. So when we start living a healthy lifestyle, we start seeing improvements in these areas. Going along with that, if you've gone through motivational interviewing, you know that we need to look at both sides of the coin. So we want to look at how the old behavior, whatever it was, makes people feel bad physically. If they are wanting to work on their anger management skills, how is proper anger management, good anger management, going to help them have more energy and you know feel less muscle tension and those sorts of things? And how is the old behavior, how does that make them feel bad physically? You know, a lot of people, if they have anger management issues, they may experience a lot of explosions, which lead to feeling fatigued a lot of the time. Spending time, most people have already thought about the reasons that they feel bad because of the problem, so they can rattle those off real easy. 
the next question that you're going to ask people is what did the old behavior do for you if it was anger management you know or anger issues what did anger do for you how did that protect you how did that serve you in some way and how are you going to manage to protect yourself now without having those explosive anger episodes if it was addiction how did that old behavior benefit you did it help you relax did it help increase your energy did it help you manage your pain what did it do for you we're looking at the positives why are we looking at the positives because you got to find a way to meet that need you can't just say okay well instead of getting angry and yelling or when you get angry instead of yelling and getting all upset and punching a wall you're not going to do that anymore and the person's going to be like okay well it served a purpose you know I did it for a reason. I need to have another way to channel that energy and get that, uh, get the protection or get the benefit that the anger provided me. So encouraging people to think about, okay, when I did this, you know, in anger, a lot of times it helps people feel more in control or it pushes away a threat. How could they alternately, alternatively address those situations in a way that was not aggressive and it's going to take some brainstorming which is why i have 15 minutes to do that but encouraging them to think about what the old behavior did and other ways to achieve that benefit once they've done this they've basically gone through a decisional balance table identifying the pros and cons of change and the pros and cons of staying the same and trying to identify ways to deal with it how could you get the same benefit from this your new behaviors from a healthy lifestyle that you did from whatever you're trying to change then you're going to kind of wrap it up by having them focus on the ways that their physical health their energy levels their pain sickness those sorts of things how did their physical health potentially cause the use of addictive behaviors in the past if you're not working with somebody with addictions you skip that question obviously i also want them to look at in what ways physical issues as a result of unhealthy lifestyle behaviors contributed to anxiety or depression and you can even ask them in what ways did physical issues low energy pain how did that contribute to problems in their relationships because a lot of times we see that when people don't have energy when they are in a lot of pain they don't want to go out they don't want to socialize they don't want to do the things that are important to them because they're too fatigued or in too much pain we want to help them see how you know the negative impact of what's going on is negatively impacting the rest of their life in order to help increase their motivation to make these positive changes the next type of motivation that we're going to talk about is affective motivation or emotional motivation and we're going to go through the same thing how is the new behavior going to make you feel better emotionally now i didn't leave a lot of time for this because you know it's pretty easy to figure out how is it going to make me happier when i'm not angry all the time how is it going to make me happier when i'm not using Using drugs how is how am I gonna feel happier when I'm not depressed well guess what I'm not depressed anymore these new behaviors or this change I'm going to make is going to help me feel happier because then looking at again how the old behavior makes you feel bad emotionally how does it make you feel angry guilty resentful depressed anxious and go through each one of those different things guilt 
and, and grieving. You can also throw those in there. Those are very common emotions. Helping them see how their old behavior, somebody who has major depressive disorder, for example, they may want to deal with their depression because they don't like being depressed. Nobody does. They want to feel happier. And recognizing that the depression is often compounded because they feel anxious that their depression is going to get worse or that they're never going to feel any better. They feel guilty because they are not able to emotionally connect with the people in their life like they want to. They may feel angry at themselves for not being able to just suck it up or feel angry at other people for not being depressed or not understanding. So you can see that even something like depression, which is an emotion, or an emotional issue, can also have other emotional consequences to that. And encouraging them to look at those. In acceptance and commitment therapy, Hayes refers to this as dirty discomfort. When people are feeling depressed, for example, and then all of those other emotions that come from telling themselves they shouldn't feel depressed, or that come from feel as a result of feeling depressed. And Encouraging people to look at those in order to help them maintain their motivation. I don't want to feel guilty anymore. I don't want to feel angry or resentful or anxious. Helping them identify those feelings and explore the factual basis of them. For example, if they feel anxious that they don't know if it's going to get worse or they don't know if they'll ever feel any better, encourage them to explore the factual basis of that, that that will happen, that they will never feel any better, um, can help them start dealing with those emotions and sort of whittling them away so we can get down to that core emotion of depression. We want to have them look at how the old behavior made them happy. And you know, with some things like generalized anxiety or major depressive disorder, you might not have much here, if anything. So don't assume that everybody has to have something. But for something like addiction, you know, there were some benefits. There were some ways that addiction made people happy. Sometimes it helped them feel connected to other people. Sometimes it helped them relax and feel giddy. Some there are a lot of different emotions that can come from different types of addictions, and we want people to recognize that. Um, if somebody, and we'll just go with something completely off the beaten path, if somebody's trying to get in shape, that's one of those New Year's resolutions, how did the old behavior, that is being a couch potato and binging on Netflix, how did that make you happy? And encouraging them to look at that, because there is definitely a need for a time and a place for relaxation and recognizing what they enjoyed about it and how else they could achieve that benefit. How else could they get that relaxation and that happiness besides going back to being a couch potato? For me, I download shows that I like onto my tablet and when I'm finished with my workout, I'll hop on a stationary bike or something and just hardly any resistance at all. You know, I'll just kind of ride the bike while I watch my show. So I don't feel quite as guilty about uh, binge watching TV. That's not going to work for everybody, but encouraging them to recognize that they still do need time for rest and relaxation. They enjoyed the shows they watched. So how can they continue to get that enjoyment from those shows? Again, without becoming a couch potato. And finally, in affective motivation, you're going to talk about how recovery or behavior change might make somebody unhappy, especially in the short term. Getting up and going to the gym, you know, 
I, I'm an avid fitness person, and there are a lot of days I get up and I'm like, you know what, no, I, I just really, I'm not digging this today. It makes me unhappy. I would much rather drink another cup of coffee and, you know, take my time getting ready before work and all that kind of stuff. But I know at the end of the day, I'll have more energy and I'll feel a lot better if I get my workout in or when I get my workout in. Encouraging people to help, encouraging people to look at what's the long-term goal and how are you going to feel if you give in to short-term cravings or short-term urges and you know, that go against your long-term goals. How is that going to make you feel in the long run? And then how can you deal with those feelings? If it is wanting to go back to bed because you've got major depressive disorder, you know, sometimes people get up and they're, they've got depression, they've got fatigue, they've got all those other symptoms of major depressive disorder, and they're just like, you know what, I, I can't deal with today, I need to, I just need to go back to bed and pull the covers over my head. Well, that's an option, but that's going to continue to mess with their circadian rhythms, and it's going to continue to cause them um, alterations in some of their hormone levels and everything. So while going back to bed does sound like the ideal option, in the long term, in terms of recovering from major depressive disorder, is it going to best serve their intention? Probably not. So how can they deal with that? When they feel that overwhelming urge to go back to bed, what can they do? Um, some people may try to take a power nap in a in an easy chair or something instead of going completely back to bed. Some people may go outside and walk around, get some sunshine, so it wakes them up. Some people may do... 50 sit-ups to get their blood blood moving. Encourage them to brainstorm things that they can do in order to deal with that short-term urge so they don't give in to it and they can continue on their path to achieving their goals. And then just like on the last uh, activity, encouraging people to explore how their emotions have caused addiction relapses in the past? How has guilt, anger, anxiety, resentment caused relapses? And how have their emotions caused relapses in mood disorders that they may have? You know, when they have felt really angry a lot, how has that triggered their depression, for example? And encouraging them to see the connection between their behaviors and their daily emotional experiences and a relapse of clinical symptoms. Cognitive motivation refers to all the logical reasons that a person wants to make this change. It's important for them to realize that our cognitive motivation is based on the available information we have to support our desired behavior. So if we don't know how this new behavior is going to benefit us, we're probably not going to be very cognitively motivated. It's just like, well, but therapist told me to do it. We want to make sure that uh, clients understand why we're asking them to do this or why we're suggesting that they might use this for an intervention. Discussing with them how the new behaviors are logical and helpful to achieving their goals. You know, what is their ultimate goal? To be happy, to be healthy. You know, that's a really broad goal for a lot of people. But how are these new behaviors, whatever changes they're trying to make going to help them be happy and healthy? How does it make sense that, you know, getting up and going to the gym or not drinking or, you know, not going back to bed and starting to follow doctor's 
treatment recommendations for depression, whatever it is, how does that make sense towards helping them get happy and healthy? How is the old behavior unhelpful to achieving their goals? So we're we're recapitulating some of the stuff just slightly differently. We're asking them from a logical standpoint, how is staying in bed all day unhelpful to recovering from depression and this is where we start to tap in to learn how much knowledge clients have about the impact of their behavior on their condition how is the old behavior maybe you know driving in rush hour traffic unhelpful to achieving the goal of anger management or stress management having them look at those behaviors and identify things that they're trying to change now in order to feel happier and healthier and exploring how those things that they're trying to change were unhelpful to long-term happiness. So if I was going back to bed, if I was using drugs, if I was whatever they're trying to change, how is that contrary? The next logical motivation is how did you rationalize that the old behavior was a good idea? I know with People with major depressive disorder, and whenever I've had major depressive episodes, I can tell you that there is a very loud voice in your head that goes, it's just too much. You know, might as well go back to bed, start over again tomorrow, try to get some more energy. Well, unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Uh, 95% of the time, probably, when you go back to bed, you're just messing up your circadian rhythms and impairing your sleep quality so that you're going to keep sleeping a lot but you're not ever going to feel rested because you're not getting that sleep when you need it encouraging people to look at the rationale they use to convince themselves that this those old behaviors were good ideas and evaluating their validity is really important if you're doing a pretty homogenous group where you're working with exclusively people with major depressive disorder or exclusively people with addictions, then obviously this might be a little bit easier to go through um, in terms of assessing the validity of different beliefs because you're going to have a certain set of core beliefs that a lot of people use to justify their behavior. Um, If it's a more heterogeneous group, you're going to have some differences, but it's still important to look Put those things up on the whiteboard. Put those things up on uh, flip chart sheets around the room. However you want to have people get their ideas out and talk about them. And each one of these things, uh, how the new behavior is logical, how the old behavior is unhelpful, how you rationalize the old behavior, and beliefs regarding the new behavior, you can put a flip chart sheet on each of the four corners of the room and have people go from station to station and fill that out at the beginning of group, and then you can talk about it instead of necessarily standing there and going through these one at a time and just talking about it. There is a lot of power in seeing things written down as opposed to just talking about them where they can go literally in one ear and out the other and just kind of disappear. The final thing that you're going to do is explore the beliefs regarding how the new behavior may not work or not work as well. And this is something when you're working with people with addictions that you often encounter because, yeah, going to meetings or, you know, going to a party clean and sober is probably not going to give you the same rush as using a stimulant. No doubt. You know, you're not going to get that same intense euphoria. However, let's look at the big scheme of things in terms of your rich and meaningful life. 
you know, there are a lot of things that are going on in your life that are good. And when you're not using, then you can appreciate all of those things. When you're using, your only happiness often comes from use. So you're relying on that one thing to provide the oomph to get your happiness. But when you're not using, you have, you know, all these other things, your family, your friends, your achievements, the sunrise, whatever it is that does it for people, that all of those can be additive to provide a certain level of um, peace or contentment or happiness or whatever they want to use. And it's going to be important for people to figure out, you know, how to make a lifestyle, a recovery lifestyle rewarding for them. And it's really going to depend on what they find rewarding, which is, you know, again, where we've got to talk with them individually. But we want to explore beliefs regarding how the behavior may not work or not work as well, and then identify the validity of those beliefs and explore ways to mitigate those concerns. So if somebody says, you know, I don't know that distress tolerance techniques are really going to help me at all in, you know, managing my anger. Okay. Why do you think that those aren't going to be as helpful? And let's talk about it. And then let's practice. For example, using distress tolerance techniques in group. Let's hypothesize. Think back over last week when you got angry. And, you know, imagine using distress tolerance techniques in that situation. How do you think that would have gone? What might have been different? How can you envision using distress tolerance techniques in the upcoming week? And how, you know, how does that feel? How does that look? Encouraging them to do mental rehearsal, applying it historically, but also applying it into the future in order to see how it might work. And encouraging them to remember that we're looking for progress, not perfection. It may not work 100% all the time. At first, it may not work 100% any of the time. But if it works some, then we can work on strengthening and enhancing that tool. Encouraging them next to look at the ways that their thinking caused addiction relapses in the past. Again, if you're not doing a group on addiction, you just skip past this question. But for a lot of people, there is some element of problematic use, even if it doesn't rise to the level of addictive behaviors. Thinking about in what ways did your thinking cause you to use substances or use behaviors in the past in order to escape from unpleasant feelings. Just becoming aware of why we do what we do. In what ways did your thinking increase your anxiety or depression in the past? And then finally, have them stop and identify five positive statements that they can make each day that can help them stay motivated in treatment. You know, whatever their treatment goals are, if was Stick with depression. We've been talking about that one for a few minutes. What are five positive statements that they can make to themselves every morning regarding their ability to recover from their depression and follow through on their treatment plan and achieve their goal of happiness? Those statements are going to be different for each and every person. I encourage them. You know I'm big on making collages and poster boards so they can see them. They can see those statements every single day. You can have images, but then... For statements, I actually encourage people to print them out, you know, in, I don't know, 68, 72-point font, something that's big, and it can go on a poster board or on a, um, on a cork board so they can see those quotes. You can also have them put the quotes in a 
jar or in a bag. You know, you don't have to get fancy with it. You can get fancy and decorate the jar or the box or the bag if they want. And then pull three out every single day if they want to put 15 different statements in there. Kind of like getting a fortune cookie. They can pull three statements out each day to remind themselves of how awesome the day is going to be. You can think of a lot of different creative ways to get this out. We talked, golly, I think it was in last Thursday's class, about also using beads. They can make an acronym with their uh, five positive statements and use a bead to represent each statement, you know, one of the letter beads, and they can wear that around. So when they need to remind themselves of positive statements, they can look at their bracelet and go through that acronym. Environmental motivation. This is one of my favorites because this is one of the least intrusive for people and one of the ones that they're usually most willing to, you know, get to work on right now. They're like, okay, you know, I can clean my house or I can add air freshener. That's something I can do. Environmental motivation includes things in the the environment that either support a recovery lifestyle, support their goals, or trigger cravings or urges or old feelings and behaviors. When you walk into a house, and if it's, you know, walk into a house of someone who is depressed um, or who has an addiction, and you look around and everything you see or a lot of the things that you see either trigger depressive feelings or addictive feelings. Maybe and with somebody who's depressed, a lot of times they keep their environment kind of dark. And when you walk into their house, a lot of times housekeeping has kind of gone by the wayside. So you walk in and you kind of see disarray. I had a friend of mine who made the analogy once, and it stuck with me, that our outside often represents our inside. So if your outside is in chaos, there's a good chance your inside may feel in chaos as well. And, and recognizing that, recognizing that, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, super neat and clean, but recognizing the impact our environment has. Um, if there are pictures that make you sad, if there are TV shows that make you angry or sad or whatever it is, making sure to eliminate those from the environment. No sense adding things that are going to make you feel unhappy, but also adding things to your environment that make you happy. Intentionally finding things online that you can, that make you smile. Intentionally finding pictures that you can print out and hang on your wall that make you smile. Adding colors to your environment that make you feel happy is so excellent to helping people improve their motivation, but also adding triggers in their environment to remind them to do the things they need to do to be happy and healthy. If that means meditation, okay, maybe make a meditation corner in one part of their living room or bedroom or something. Um, If they need to practice doing things that make make them laugh, you know, maybe setting a push notification to remind them to spend 20 minutes doing something that's going to make them laugh. Anything that they can do to add in happiness, as well as just going through to a cursory um, survey of their environment and identify anything that contributes to them wanting to engage in those old behaviors or feelings. Encourage them to pay attention not only to sights, but also sounds and smells. Sounds can be very potent uh, triggers for anxiety, depression, and sometimes they can even be triggers for addiction. If somebody used to gamble, hearing the sounds of slot machines can be triggering for them. If somebody used to 
use cocaine, hearing the sound of shaking down um, sweetener packets or sugar packets can be triggering for them. I had a client point that out one time. So recognizing that there are some things that we often don't pay attention, attention to. A lot of times we think about sights. Well, sights are great, but we also have other senses that trigger memories. And smells are some of our most potent memory triggers. And it's important to remind people that positive smells can trigger positive memories. So we want to increase those. But unpleasant smells sometimes are unavoidable and they need to be aware of how to counter them. Um, I've shared with you guys before that some of my clients will carry what I call a counter smell bag with them where they have essential oils or some sort of perfume or something on a cotton ball that's in a little Ziploc baggie that they keep in their pocket or in their wallet or in their purse. So if they happen to get into a place or get walk past somebody that has a cologne or aftershave or something on that reminds them of a traumatic event or a stressful event in their past, they can replace that smell, change the uh, sensory input with a pleasant smell really quickly. And a lot of people have reported that, that that's really helpful if there are particular scents that are especially triggering. I've had um, one client who went through a traumatic event with a car crash on the interstate. So the smell of exhaust um, was triggering for him. And, you know, sometimes you get caught in traffic and you just can't, you can't get out of it and you're going to be smelling car exhaust. And that would trigger flashbacks for him. And he found that having the um, cotton ball handy was useful because he could open that pack when he was in his car and just kind of stick the little cotton ball in the, um, air conditioning vent, and he would start smelling that in the car instead of the, or instead of as much of the um, car exhaust. So there are a lot of different things that they can do, but it's important for them to know what their triggers are and identify ways to deal with them. It's important for people to identify ways they can change their environment to support a recovery lifestyle. Like I said, sites, these include things, you know, pictures and blankets and just disorganization or organization, but also people, you know, and people will also go into relational, but sometimes seeing people every single day, even if you don't interact with them, can be triggering for others, for, for clients. So it's important to recognize when certain people are around, when I see them, you know, how am I going to handle that? Or how can I avoid for people who are in recovery from addiction? Sometimes seeing their dealer is a huge trigger or seeing their dealer's neighborhood is a huge trigger. And it's important to recognize that when I see that person, it may trigger a desire to use and develop a plan to deal with it. The next question to ask them is how, how a healthy environment is going to help them feel better physically and emotionally. Really bringing it back around, encouraging them to tie it all together, and exploring how making some of these changes could start helping them feel better physically and emotionally even today. Getting them excited about it so they can say, okay, you know, I can see where this might help, so I'm excited to do this. Maybe I'll stop off at XYZ store on the way home and get some, you know, lavender cleaner or whatever it is that they want to do, make it smell better in, in their environment.
just like with all the other sources of motivation, you wrap it up by asking them, in what ways did the environment contribute to addictive behaviors in the past or escape behaviors? In what ways has their environment contributed to anxiety and depression in the past? And one we really haven't talked about a lot, but I think is important, is to consider the way that environment may have contributed to pain in the past. And you might be going, pain? Well, number one, think ergonomics. You know, if you have a really uncomfortable bed, if you're sitting in a really uncomfortable chair, that can contribute to pain. What does pain is a physical trigger for dysphoric emotions. We typically, when we're in a lot of pain, tend to be grumpier and it can trigger people to want to use. So what things in the environment, how can our environment trigger pain? Poor ergonomics is one. If you have poor lighting, um, really dark lighting and you're squinting to see or there's a lot of glare on your monitor because you have this bright monitor in a really dark room uh, that can contribute to headaches and neck tension and a few other things that can cause pain likewise if it's too bright and you have really obnoxious lights that are overhead or glaring or heaven forbid a fluorescent ballast that's flickering that can also contribute to feelings of from everything from motion sickness to headaches and migraines ensuring people recognize the impact of their environment uh, when i am around really strong smells and i love smells don't get me wrong i'm not one of those smell averse people i love smells but if i'm around really really strong smells um, i'll get a headache and recognizing that is important for me. And it's not just paint. You know, paint is its own whole different ballgame. But even, you know, being around uh, in the dojang my kids used to go to, the grandmaster would use uh, essential oils and he would diffuse them in the lobby, try to cover up the smell of all the sweat. Um, and I applaud him for that. But a lot of times it was so strong, it was overpowering, and it would, you know, make my head hurt. And I be confused and have difficulty, you know, concentrating while I was in there because I just, it was so strong, I couldn't think straight. Encouraging people to recognize if there are times when that happens, you know, sometimes maybe where you work, they use a particularly potent cleaner and knowing, seeing the connection can help them make small changes in their situation to start feeling better. So smells can contribute to pain, light levels can contribute to pain, and ergonomics can contribute to pain. Pain can trigger dysphoric emotions. Dysphoric emotions can trigger addictive behavior. Um, so there are a lot of connections there. And pain in and of itself, like I said, may trigger for some people who used substances or addictions to cope with pain. That may be, you know, a direct connection there. So pain is an interesting trigger. To take a look at and finally relational motivation these are things that increase your self-esteem self-acceptance and social approval or social acceptance relational i always start out when i talk with people by saying what is your relationship with yourself it is important to know whether you're accepting of yourself and know what you appreciate about yourself because you've got to have some sort of a relationship with yourself before you can start having healthy relationships with other people. How is the new behavior going to increase your self-acceptance and self-approval? You know, how, how, how am I going to feel better about myself when I start doing these? You know, I'm going to feel better about myself because I have more energy and I have more enthusiasm and I can be more involved in my relationships instead of being, you know, emotionally disconnected because I'm exhausted and depressed all the time. 
how are these new behaviors how is this healthy lifestyle going to increase acceptance from others how is it going to improve my relationships with the people that i care and love about and how is how is it going to change their level of acceptance of me how are they going to approve of my behaviors how is the old behavior in opposition to my self-concept you know if i am clinically depressed that is not my self-concept i see myself as um, enthusiastic and outgoing and you know friendly and excited and all those things and kind of like a chihuahua but when i'm depressed i don't want to get out of bed i feel more like an old hound dog and that's not i don't see myself with the big old droopy jowls and droopy ears you know sleeping 23 out of 24 hours a day that's just not my self-concept so and I don't know why I'm using dogs as analogies today, but, you know, go with it. Uh, exploring how those behaviors are in opposition, who they believe they are and the type of person they think they are is really important. So they can see how this, these changes are going to help them become the person that they want to be, that they feel that they really are and help that shine. Explore how the old behavior led to rejection and isolation from personal self-rejection. You know, I'm looking at myself going... You know, you really suck today, which is not a nice thing to say to yourself. But a lot of times when people are, you know, sobering up after an addictive relapse or they are depressed or anxious, they often have some pretty negative self-deprecating things to say. And it's important to look at how those behaviors contribute to rejection of themselves and contribute to isolation pushing other people off because maybe they don't feel worthy of love and affection from others explore how the old behavior was socially rewarding if it was not all behaviors are socially rewarding addictions happen to be in a lot of cases people uh, form social networks around their addiction in some cases people use substances in order to help them relax so they can go out and feel like they're having fun at parties and those sorts of things encouraging them to identify the benefits socially to them of the old behaviors and how they can achieve those same goals in their new lifestyle how might the new behavior cause rejection from others this is particularly true with addictions because when people um, get into recovery and they stop using substances then a lot of times they need to put some distance between themselves and using friends and those friends may not want to engage in recovery right now so they may find that there's a rift in that friendship because those people are not going to embrace the recovery lifestyle and the patient is not going to regress to the using or addicted lifestyle they need to think about how they're going to cope with that if their friend says you know what man i'm not you can have those meetings and that recovery stuff that that's not for me i'm good then how are they going to deal with that and recognize the difference between a rejection of these new behaviors and a rejection of themselves because their friend is probably you know still likes them but is just not down with these new behaviors and and it's important for them to recognize the difference but also recognize why it's important to set those boundaries and then finish up with ways that their relationships and self-esteem has caused addictive behaviors or addiction relapses in the past and how their relationships and self-esteem have contributed to depression and anxiety in the past making sure we're continuing to help them see the relationship 
between their presenting issues and all the other aspects of their life. Motivation comes in many forms. It's important to help people recognize and enhance their motivations for recovery and recognize and mitigate those motivations for relapse. The next thing that we're going to talk about is stages of readiness for change. And we're going to go through those kind of quickly because I know we're running short on time. Readiness is a combination of motivation, willingness, and ability. People go through a sequence of stages as they begin to think about and maintain new behaviors. And like we talked about before, people have different levels of motivation for each and every desired change or action. And readiness for change and motivation go hand in hand. When people are ready to change, when they're in that action phase, then they are motivated to make a change. When they are in pre-contemplation, they are not yet motivated. So in pre-contemplation, we're really looking at helping them identify all of the sources of motivation that may encourage them to make a change. There are three types of pre-contemplators. In general, in pre-contemplation, the person does not intend to change. They are minimizing, rationalizing, denying that there is a problem at all. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, rebellious pre-contemplators may be afraid of losing control. So we want to look back over their trauma history and explore times when they've had their power taken away and help them shift their energy into making positive choices, taking control over making positive choices rather than just rebelling against us. Recognizing that resistance or rebellion, whatever you want to call it, is communicating something. It is telling us I'm afraid to go there, or I'm not ready to go there for some reason. I, I, that's overwhelming. I can't go there. And then exploring that with them to help take some of the anxiety and fear away. If people are afraid of looking, losing control, we can have them explore what's making them feel forced into recovery. What are they afraid will happen if they're not in control? Uh, some, sometimes people are afraid that if their emotions get out of control, they're not going to be able to shut the lid on that Pandora's box and, you know, they're not sure what's going to happen. So they're afraid to even go there. So let's talk about what you're afraid will happen if you're not in complete control of everything all the time, which in reality, they're probably not, but now's not the time to point that out. Talk about how they can keep themselves safe. How can you maintain control? How can you start down this journey to being happier and healthier and keep yourself feeling safe at the same time. And that may mean keeping a certain amount of control, which takes us down to what do you have control over in this process? Reminding them that we can't make them do anything. I can suggest that they don't use substances, but I can't, well, unless I'm putting them in four point restraints, which we don't do. Um, I can't make them not use. If they're going to use, if they're going to figure out a way to use, they're going to figure out a way to use. That's just the way it is. So exploring, helping them explore what they do have control over so they don't feel the need to try to resist and fight against everything. They say, okay, I've got this. I've got my little bubble here that's in my control. And for pre-contemplators, a lot of times they're involuntary. So we want to ask them, how can they make the best of this situation? When I worked with people who were in um, involuntary substance abuse treatment, instead of me saying, you know, we're going to talk about all the reasons drugs are bad. We're going to talk about all the ways that you can keep from using drugs again. And that would go in and in one ear and out the other because they weren't ready to quit using drugs. They didn't want to hear that they couldn't use drugs ever again. So 
that was falling on deaf ears. So we would talk about, you're stuck with me for 12 weeks. How can we make the best of this time in order to help you be happier and healthier? You know, let's just look at that. And generally, moving towards being happier and healthier also means moving away from those unhealthy behaviors. But we're not approaching it from the same direction. We're kind of backdooring into it. Other people are pre-contemplative because they don't have sufficient knowledge of the problem or the impact it's having. So we can help them increase their awareness, which we've done in the motivation exercises, by helping them see how their addiction or their mood disorders are impacting all of the other areas of their life. We also want to help them increase their awareness of recovery options. You know, should they want to live happier and healthier? What's, what might that look like? Some people may not have, you know, any idea what that looks like. And finally, resigned pre-contemplators feel hopeless about change and overwhelmed by all of the energy required. They may be clinically depressed. They may be thinking, I can barely find the energy to take a shower, let alone come to counseling and do homework and do all this other stuff. I hear you. Um, they also may have tried to recover before and relapsed, or they were recovered for a while and now they're having another episode <clears throat> in the case of major depressive disorder, for example. And that can get very frustrating and they may feel resigned to where they're at right now. So we can encourage them to identify times they've tried to change and been successful, even if only for a few hours, so they can see those little glimmers of when things got better. And this also helps us understand what helps, what works to help them start feeling better. We want to use prior recovery attempts as learning experiences to identify strengths and strategies that work for that person. In contemplation, the person's starting to realize there's a problem and they're contemplating the need for change, but they're not quite ready. They're starting to feel a little distressed, but they also may be overwhelmed by what they need to do and unsure of what the next right step is. So we want to help them increase their sense of commitment, control, and challenge. Commitment to both the change process and those things that are important in their life. You know, how is this change process going to help you, you know, better serve or better develop the things that are important in your life? Reminding them what they have control over so they don't feel powerless, they don't feel like we're pushing them into anything, and encouraging them to view these changes as challenges that they can, that, that they can accomplish, that they can try to achieve instead of seeing it as an obstacle or a barrier that is going to be a problem. Have them spend about 15 minutes thinking about when their issues are not present and go through each one of them because most people have experienced depression. Most people have experienced anxiety. Most people have experienced physical pain. Not everybody's experienced addiction, but have them identify, and this is one I do like to do around the room on, on the flip chart paper, times when they're not having the following issue. When I'm not depressed, what's different? When I'm not using, what's different? Preparation is the next stage, and in this stage, people are preparing to make a change. It's kind of like packing for a trip. They're getting ready to do it, but they're not walking out the door yet. They're clarifying their goals and strategies, figuring out exactly what they are willing and ready to do. And they're examining their confidence that they can change. This is where that poster board comes in, where they make a collage of the positive aspects of the recovery, the big picture, you know, their kids, their dog, their money, their uh, career, their hobbies, whatever, um, that answers the question, what would life be like 
if you woke up tomorrow and were sober or and were happy, whatever works for your for your group. Once they make that collage, have them go over each thing that's on that collage, like their kids, maybe the, the relationship with their kids would improve, and put a sticky note on it that identifies the first step that they're going to take to start improving that aspect of their life. And then maybe, you know, physical health is another thing on their collage. They're going to put another sticky note on that, identifying the first step that they're going to take to start improving that area of their life. So that gives them a visual representation of the first steps that they're going to take and what it's leading them to. Howdy from the future encourages people to write a letter to themselves with a future date and describe what life is like at that point. Or you can have them do recovery like they're planning for a trip. Write down the directions to their destination recovery and identify any obstacles or construction zones along the way and how they're going to manage all other facets of their life while they're on their trip. In action, they're leaving on their trip. They are ready, willing, and able to make the change. And it's going to be important to maintain motivation. Because remember, motivation left untended will often, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Decrease. In order to do that, Encourage them to go through this relapse prevention activity at home, or you can do it as a group. Physically, you know, again, just summarizing everything we've talked about. How will it improve my health, energy, and pain? What can I do to ensure I have an energy to focus on recovery? And what are prior physical relapse warning signs that I've had, and how can I cope with those? Affectively, how will it make me happier? What am I excited about? What can I do each day to increase my happiness? And what are prior affective relapse warning signs and how can i cope cognitively how will it improve my attitude change my stinking thinking help me make better decisions and improve my focus and concentration what thoughts can i add that will help me stay motivated these are affirmations those positive thoughts that we had and what are my prior cognitive relapse warning signs? What, how does my attitude change before I relapse and how can I cope? Environmentally, what can I add to my environment to keep me motivated? What do I need to take from my environment to prevent being triggered? What are prior environmental relapse warning signs? Maybe, you know, I start hanging out in old places or with old people. And how can I cope with these? And relationships. How will recovery improve my relationships? Which people will encourage me on my journey? And what are prior relationship relapse warning signs? And how can I cope with them? You know, what happens in my relationships? Is there a lot of suspicion, a lot of arguing? Do I get defensive when I am starting down that road to relapse? And how can I cope with that? Final thoughts. Encourage clients to get to know and trust themselves. Have them find three people who they can count on to provide honest, constructive feedback. Explore the pros and cons of the problem with them. Encourage them to compare their perception of the problem with other people's perceptions of the problem. Remind them that change is a gradual process. The addiction often helped them survive until they were able to start getting other tools. So it's important right now for them to focus on their strengths more so than their weaknesses. And yes, as, as Pat points out, it's important to go through this more than once to have it stick. Um, each one of those slides, each one of those 90-minute slides represents a group. And if you do group once a week, then you're going through those things and recapitulating a lot of the stuff every week and adding a little bit of new stuff each time in order to encourage them to remember it. Um, so it, 
they are hearing the same stuff over and over and over again. And then that final activity that they do, they are taking everything that they've talked about and putting it into a preliminary relapse prevention. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.